Hi guys, welcome to Made It Happen Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Hayflin. Made It Happen Podcast is a series highlighting young female founders who took a chance and launched their own business. Through interviews with young female entrepreneurs, Made It Happen is dedicated to inspiring others through stories of those who've experienced going out on their own firsthand, discussing all the highs and the lows. It can be easy to see the glamorous side of starting your own business through the internet and social media, but what does it really take behind the scenes to launch and run your own successful business? Hear how these inspiring female founders made it happen. Today on the podcast, we have Erin Burry, one of Marketing Magazine's top 30 under 30. Erin is an entrepreneur, marketer, former journalist, and startup advisor and investor. She is the co-founder and CEO at Willful, an online estate planning platform that makes it easy for Canadians to create a will in less than 20 minutes. Prior to Willful, she held leadership roles at communications agency 88, startup publication Betakit, and at Sprouter, which was acquired by Post Media in 2011. Erin is a frequent speaker with Speaker Spotlight, writes a column for the Financial Post, and is a tech commentator at CTV News. She has appeared in publications including the New York Times, Forbes, and CNN. I just want to start off by saying I'm so excited to have you on the podcast, and thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. Yeah, of course, Sarah. I'm excited to be here, and uh, congrats on on launching something. I love that you're taking the time to to profile entrepreneurs and uh, and people who have gone out on their own. So, so definitely honored to be one of your first guests. <laughs> well, thank you. Yes, I'm I'm very excited for the launch. So, how about we start off by having you tell us a bit about your background and how you first got started into entrepreneurship? For sure. So. You know, I really wasn't someone that grew up in an entrepreneurial household. And in fact, I didn't even know what the word entrepreneur really meant until I was in my 20s. My parents both worked at, at Nortel, um, my mom and my stepdad, and my, my dad was a community newspaper journalist in Belleville, Ontario. And so I didn't really have any examples in my family of small business owners or entrepreneurs. And because of that, I really aspired to, uh, you know, have a corporate job and a corner office and that was really my pinnacle of success uh, and it was only after you know I went to journalism school with the goal of, of getting into marketing uh, and then you know I was working at my first job at a mid-sized PR agency of about 100 people in, in downtown Toronto uh, this was around 2008 and uh, I was introduced to a mutual friend who was uh, launching a startup and needed someone to join as one of the first employees to handle you know, marketing and communications and events. And uh, for some reason, she saw something in me and, and hired me to be that person. And and honestly, that, that was the first introduction I had to entrepreneurship in the startup world. And that startup was a social network for entrepreneurs. So really, my job was to go out every day and shake hands with entrepreneurs at events and interview them for our blog and just learn a ton about what makes entrepreneurs tick and, and to hear their origin stories of how how they encountered a problem and how they were solving it. 
And I think that process just made me so much more aware of what entrepreneurship is and what goes into it, but also, you know, to view the world like an entrepreneur, because I had always looked at problems as things that other people would solve. And I think entrepreneurship, being exposed to it, really reframed it in my mind to something where if I encountered a problem, I could solve it myself and become an entrepreneur. So that was really the job that kind of set me on this path of startups and entrepreneurship and being very passionate about that. That's awesome. And so now can you maybe tell us a bit about the company now, Willful Wills, and how that all got started? For sure. Yeah. So uh, after that kind of first startup job, I, I fell in love with entrepreneurship. I was bitten by the startup bug and there was no turning back. So yeah, so uh, it it took me a while to actually start my own business. For a while, I was, um, you know, just working for, for other people and kind of learning and getting experience and managing people and growing teams. Uh, I spent some time on the founding team at BetaKit, which is a startup publication in Canada. Uh, I then ran a marketing and branding agency for about six years and that agency worked with a lot of startups and entrepreneurs so that was really cool to help other entrepreneurs grow their brands and uh, and grow their public public profile uh, and my first business that I started was actually a wine tour business in Prince Edward County and uh, if that sounds fun I can promise you it is <laughs> it's um, you know and it was one of those moments where you know before I, I got into the startup world, I, again, I would have looked at a problem and just thought, oh, someone else will solve it. So it was one summer, you know, five or six years ago, and a couple of my girlfriends and I were visiting my dad in, in Prince Edward County. And we would always go around to the wineries and do tastings. And we realized that even though the wineries were really close together, there were no bicycle tours that were shuttling people between them and showing them the area, even though there was some popular tours like that in Niagara. So, uh, you know, I think the old me would have said, wow, that's a good business opportunity for someone. But after being exposed to startups so much, I said, hey, guys, we could launch a company offering bike tours. We're smart. We have tons of communications and business experience. So that was where the idea was born to launch the County Wine Tours, which was, you know, really my first time not just helping someone else's startup grow, but, you know, starting my own business from the ground up. And we're now in our fourth season, although, of course, uh, COVID has delayed the start of our next uh, cycling season. Uh, so that was really my first entrepreneurship endeavor. And that wasn't a full-time thing. That was a side hustle that I started while I was running my agency. And it's still a part-time thing today, but it's it's really fun. And I learned a ton from getting off, that off the ground. Um, and it was while I was running my agency that my husband, Kevin... Uh, kind of came up with the idea for Willful. So his family, his uncle passed away uh, rather suddenly and he had never really talked to his family about what he would have wanted after he passed away, you know, burial wishes and what type of ceremony he would have wanted. So his family... Uh, including Kevin, were sitting around kind of chatting and arguing about these things. And Kevin thought, you know, we're at this time, we were in our early 30s, uh, you know, it was 2016. And he was saying, we're using Wealthsimple for, to manage our money and online tools for pretty much everything else. So why are we preparing for death the same way that we were in the 1980s? Um, so that was really the spark of the idea for Willful. And then, you know, somehow I, I was an early investor. I was an advisor to the company. My agency did some of the naming and branding around the company. And then uh, somehow it got to the point where I just was convinced to go join as CEO. And so now here we are about a year later after joining full time. Okay. And so you had mentioned 
You know, you went from sort of a marketing agency to the online estate planning company. Those are sort of very different sectors, but do you feel, you, you know, you're still using a lot of the same processes and skills for both of them, or was it sort of a big pivot for you? Yeah, I mean, I think working at an agency is always uh, a lot different from working for a product company where you're not working with clients. And the biggest difference is when you're running an agency or working in an agency, your day is pretty well defined by other people. It's defined by your clients, you know, what they have going on, what deadlines they have, projects that come up, uh, or, you know, new business, trying to secure new clients and building out proposals. So you don't really have as much control over how you spend your time. Uh, when you're the biggest shift for me from going to from the agency to to willful where, you know, we don't have client work, we're just working for ourselves uh, was just having control over my day and having control over my time. Um, and th that's a good thing in that, you know, I didn't have emergency client projects coming up or anything, but it also makes you question Am I spending time on the right things? Am I prioritizing correctly? And is there somewhere else I could be better spending my time? So I think it's been it's been really refreshing to not have to keep track of how I spend my hours and um, you know worry about client emergencies coming up in the middle of the night. But it's definitely added this other side to it, which is you know, am I focusing on the right things as a leader? And am I am I doing the right things every day that are going to move the company forward? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, looking at your company from when it first launched or just any startup in general, how do you go about building that client base and building that brand awareness? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think regardless of whether you're selling direct to consumers or you're selling to other businesses, I think this place to start is always asking yourself, what are my customer personas? You know, who am I actually trying to sell my product to? And where do those people spend time online and offline? And how can I integrate into those channels so that, you know, I'm, I'm not spending a ton of money to reach them? Uh, so for us, for example, at Willful, uh, our, you know, anyone over the age of 18 might need a will or a power of attorney document, but our biggest customer segments tend to be uh, people who are going through major life events. So for example, people who are having children for the first time or having another child, uh, people who are getting married or divorced or buying a large asset like a home. So we kind of made these customer personas based around those life events. So, you know, our ideal customer is someone who just had a child, who, you know, is really busy, is at home and taking care of that new, new baby, can't necessarily leave the house to make an appointment with a lawyer. And they're most likely following parenting influencers and reading publications about parenting and, you know, spending lots of their time on social media because they are at home and up at all hours of the night. And if you actually take the time to build out those kind of profiles, you can start to think about, okay, well, if I spend my time trying to partner with mom bloggers or parenting influencers or getting coverage in publications that parents are reading, then I'm going to have an easier time chance of building willful with that audience. Um, and I don't necessarily have to spend a ton of money to reach them. So the first step is definitely building those customer personas or profiles. Uh, and, and if you don't know where those people 
are spending their time or what they're reading, interview some of them, you know, call up a friend or find someone in your network who is part of that customer segment and ask them, you know, what publications do you read? And do you, you know, watch TV? Do you listen to the radio? Uh, What kind of groups or associations are you part of? And that can give you a really good sense of where to start when you're building up your public profile. Yeah, that's that's great. And you had mentioned social media and you know, I think that is a digital presence is so important for businesses nowadays and it's it's easily accessible for everyone. But for startups, how do they try and stand out from all of the noise that is online and really make their presence known? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think there's there's two sides to the business. There's how do you make a great product or service that people will really want to buy or really enjoy using? Uh, but the other side of it is how do you actually get the word out about it? I mean, you can have the best product since sliced bread, but if nobody knows about it, you're not exactly going to be successful. So it's definitely a fine balance of, of focusing on both when you're an early stage startup. You know, I feel fortunate that I do have a marketing and PR background. So for me, that is my natural strength and the thing that I gravitate to most. But a lot of startup founders don't have a background in marketing. They're, you know, technical people or they have a background in finance. So uh, I guess my first tip would be figure out what your weak spots are and augment those with external help. You know, if you're not someone that's naturally great at marketing or who has an affinity towards it, then maybe don't force yourself to be the person who's marketing your company. Focus on what you're great at. And there's lots of, you know, internship programs where you can get an intern to come on and help you for a subsidy, or you can hire someone to help you out as a freelancer or consultant. So I think the first step is kind of figuring out if you're the right person to be doing the marketing and building the public profile for your company. And then once that's done, you know, I think the social media side of it is is great because it's, it's free And all it takes is your time. But to your point, it's so noisy. There are so many small businesses and big businesses that are competing for people's attention. And I think it comes back to really understanding who your target customer is and focusing on one niche at a time. You can't boil the ocean. You can't go on Twitter and follow everybody who's 25 to 35 years old who lives in Ottawa. That's just too broad of a market. But if you narrow that down to, I'm targeting you know, new parents who are between the ages of 30 and 35 years old who live in Ottawa and who follow XYZ pages on Facebook or Instagram, then you start to build a much more targeted audience. And when you follow them, it's going to be easier to break through the noise because you have a product that you've already decided will really resonate with that audience. So hopefully it makes it easier to break through the noise. Uh, And the other way I think to break through noise is just being creative, uh, building really great content and Um, you know, standing out from everyone else's marketing messages. You have an advantage as a small business in that you can take risks, whether that's being funny or being risque or pushing things out really quickly to react to current events that a lot of big businesses don't have because they have a legal department and tons of bureaucracy and approval levels. So if you can move quickly, have a sense of humor with it and show your brand personality, uh, that really will help you you break through all of the noise that's out there. Yeah, those are some really great points. Yes, thank you. And so I guess going forward, you're so you're the CEO of your own company, you run multiple businesses, you do speaker series. How do you manage 
your time with everything, I mean, on top of your personal life? Yeah, well, when you work with your husband, your personal life kind of becomes your work life. (laughs) I'd like to say that I have a very clear work-life balance, but, you know, in 2020, I don't think that work-life balance is really the word that we should be using. I think it's work-life integration. I mean, I can't think of one of my friends who, regardless of what their job is, isn't spending some sort of time outside of the traditional nine to five, checking emails or getting back to things. Uh, and I can't think of anybody who doesn't take time during their day to check social media and respond to personal emails. So I think it really is about that work-life integration. and. You know, I think there's a lot of cliche sayings about if you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. I mean, work is work, even if you love it. But I think working for yourself means that you don't necessarily frame it in the same way. Now that Kevin and I are running our own company, it just feels so natural to be like last night at 11.30 p.m. We were we're printing and shipping wills right now because of COVID and people who have lost access to a printer. But we were sitting there saying, oh, I'm so mad that we have to be working and printing things out at midnight. It was, you know, fun because we, we love it and we love the mission and we're so invested in the company. So I think the first tip is, you know, find something that you, you do love to do, whether that's for yourself or other people, and then you won't necessarily be looking at the clock all the time. But um, I, I'm a really organized person. I'll be honest, I have many to-do lists and project management apps and calendaring and to-do lists. I mean, I'm just the type of person who's very anal about having an organized schedule. And and that means that I tend to be pretty efficient, but I also love doing nothing. I'm a big fan of Netflix and reality shows and having space to read books and play the guitar and do absolutely nothing. So, um, you know, I try to every week take Friday night and Saturday completely off of doing anything work-related. And then Sunday is usually my catch-up day where I organize uh, meal plans for the week and and I get through my email inbox and set up my task lists and, and project boards for the week. Uh, and that just helps me to feel a little bit more on top of things and organized so that I'm never stressed out on a Monday. But uh, I certainly don't have it all figured out. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you. And You know, you sort of touched upon this, you know, there are many benefits to sort of running your own business and it's amazing to see sort of what entrepreneurs can do. But what are some of sort of the risks or maybe downsides to running your own business and ways that those who are thinking of starting their own business can sort of prepare for that? For sure. I mean, Unfortunately, I think you're seeing a lot of the risks and downsides right now because of what's happening with COVID. I mean, there are millions of small business owners and employees across Canada who, you know, probably didn't have an emergency fund or a contingency plan for what they would do if they had to close their doors. So the biggest risk to starting a company is that it won't succeed. And there are lots of stats out there about the number of small businesses that don't make it. So, you know, I think it's going into starting a business, not with the attitude of I'm going to be a millionaire. If you're going in with that attitude, you're probably doing it for the wrong reasons or you have misaligned expectations. It's going in with your eyes wide open. Yes, this might not succeed. It might be successful, but not wildly successful, or it might completely fall flat. 
but I'm in it for the journey. I always say to Kevin, you know, yeah, if we sell Willful at some point and we make some money, great. That's not why I'm doing it. I'm doing it because I'm passionate about it. And also because I'm learning so much every day about how to run a business and how to lead a team. And that's really the value that you get out of, uh, out of being in entrepreneurship. So I think the risk of, of, of the company not succeeding is number one. And then also just, you know, be aware of, of your own, personal kind of capital and and financials and whether you want to put those into the business. So a lot of people take the contents of a savings account and they pour every dollar they have to their name into their company, or they take out a loan and they co-sign on it with their personal stuff so that if the company goes down, the bank can repossess their house or take their personal assets. And I would really caution any entrepreneur about doing that because you're already stressed out enough when you're running a business and trying to make sure that you're, you're hitting your sales targets and meeting payroll. You don't want to feel like you're going to lose your house if the business doesn't succeed. There are lots of programs out there like Futurepreneur, which gives uh, loans that aren't personally guaranteed. Uh, companies like ClearBank, which are providing you know non-dilutive capital to business owners, and lots of grant programs from the government that can help you get off your feet without you having to necessarily empty your savings account and put every dollar you have into it. So those would be a, a couple of the things I would be cognizant of as I was starting a business, um, just to make sure that. If it doesn't succeed, you're coming out of it on the other side, okay? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you had touched a bit um, on it right now with COVID-19, and it is a very uncertain time for many people. How has this affected your company, and what changes has your business had to do in order to cope with the situation? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think like most businesses, we didn't know how it would affect our business. You know, we didn't know if all of a sudden everyone's tightening their purse strings. And so getting a will and a power of attorney document is not an essential purchase anymore, or if it would go the other way. And because this was happening in the world, people would think more about the need for emergency planning. And, you know, we've been very fortunate that it's been the latter and we've seen a huge increase in demand from customers who are putting their emergency plans in place. Uh, And, you know, while we're very grateful as a business that that's the case because, you know, we haven't had to lay anyone off and our team is very secure. Um, it's, it's, I struggle with it as an entrepreneur because I know that while we're doing well through this, so many of my peers and others in the small business community are going through their worst time ever. So we've tried to do a few things to, to help with that. Um, personally, I share uh, small business shout outs on my Instagram every day. You can go to my profile and see hundreds of them in my highlights that I, if you're looking for any small business purchases, um, we've given our team small business credits that they can spend at local small businesses to help support them. Uh, and we've shifted from you know purchasing in-office snacks and other purchases to ordering from local suppliers and uh, restaurants and takeout places for our team whenever possible. Um, on the willful side, I think we've tried to give back by recognizing that healthcare workers are a, a lot more at risk to contract COVID. Uh, and a lot of the hospitals and doctors are asking them to get emergency plans in place. So we've given out a thousand free plans to healthcare workers, about 500 have been given out so far. Uh, so we've seen a really great demand from, from them. And, you know, we don't have a manufacturing department. We can't necessarily manufacture personal protective equipment, but we 
can at least do something to help this community of people who are putting their lives at risk. So, uh, and then we've also just tried to be compassionate leaders through this time. So, you know, Kevin and I have topped up all of our employees uh, therapy benefits in case they wanted to take advantage of talking to someone during this time and we've made it very clear that this is not business as usual while our company might be doing well we're under no illusion that people aren't struggling with this right now mentally everyone is struggling with anxiety and fear and so we've just tried to make it clear that you know we're here for the team and we understand if they need to take a day or they need to you know be a little bit less productive than usual so i think you know, for any leader out there who's running a team, it's it's about being compassionate and empathetic and trying to support uh, to support other businesses and trying to provide value to customers during this time. Absolutely. Yeah. No. And that's it's so amazing all the things that you guys have been doing. And just for any of the listeners who maybe are interested in the healthcare program, how do they go about getting more information on that? Yeah, so if you are a healthcare worker or you know someone who is, you can go to willful.co slash support dash healthcare, uh, or you can just go to our main website and we've linked to that page from, from the homepage. Uh, so yeah, we're, we're really excited about that and, and we've had a great reception to it. It's honestly, it makes it all worth it when you get an email from a nurse or a doctor saying that this really, uh, really helped them out. So that's been, been really nice, but there's, you know, I think COVID has also really illustrated the innovative nature of the entrepreneurial community. I mean, there are so many business owners right now who have been forced to pivot, whether that's a, a local fitness studio that's now offering online classes. I saw that my hair hairdresser is sending out at-home coloring kits so that you can touch up your roots without uh, without having to use a drugstore dye. I mean, I know a guy that does pest control and he's pivoted to disinfecting condo lobbies uh, as his business and he has crazy demand. So while I think it's been hard to see all of these small businesses that are struggling, it's been really heartwarming to see how entrepreneurs are innovating and pivoting during this time. And I think it speaks to that entrepreneurial mindset of just finding a way to get it done, regardless of how. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you did sort of talk about how the small businesses can be sort of adjusting right now. Is there any other sort of advice you'd give to those businesses that maybe are struggling with the current situation? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, first and foremost, look into all of the government benefits that are available. There are a bunch of programs from wage subsidies to uh, a reduction in payroll taxes to uh, interest-free loans, part of which are being forgiven by the government, uh, to a bunch of other measures that are helping small business owners get through this. So, you know, check out the, the Government of Canada's website or, you know, reach out to pretty much any of your banks and they have details on how to actually apply for that stuff. Um, and then I think it's, it's, you know, this is kind of forcing business owners to go digital. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. You know, I've been doing online fitness classes on Instagram Live from my favorite studio, and it's made me realize, hey, maybe I would pay for a digital membership to a fitness studio after this is all over. So uh, while I think it's really unfortunate for restaurants or retail stores that they're having to close their doors, I think it's actually going to have a positive impact long term in that it's making businesses function. It's forcing them to function in a digital economy. Uh, It's making consumers more aware of why they should be supporting small business and how essential they are. And it's making business owners 
put digital measures into place. So when this is all over and they open their doors again, they'll be able to offer e-commerce and digital options for people who might not be in their neighborhood. So I think, you know, if, if I'm a business owner that has been negatively affected by COVID, I would be thinking about what are products and services that I can offer online to augment what I would be offering offline? And, you know, what's another way that I might be able to fund my business creatively, whether that's selling gift cards or um, future memberships or booking future appointments or anything like that. Absolutely. I definitely agree. So then um, I also want to talk about you do many sort of speaker series on entrepreneurship, marketing and tech. Public speaking is definitely a big fear for many people. Is this something that's always come sort of natural to you? And what advice would you give to those who are looking to improve those skills? Yeah, I mean, I I have to say I get nervous every single time I go on stage. I think there are, uh, it's very rare that someone never gets nervous going on stage, even if they're very comfortable with public speaking. Uh, And to your point, it's definitely something that a lot of people struggle with. Um, I actually did a training program with a company called Speaker Labs, and I highly recommend, you know, either checking them out or looking up any sort of online classes around how to be a better public speaker. I mean, while we're at home right now, this is the perfect time to be practicing in the comfort of your own home before you ever get in front of an audience. Um, And I think, you know, one thing that Speaker Labs taught me was that The reason people get nervous is often lack of preparation. So if you have a talk that you're giving and you practice it a hundred times and you know it like the back of your hand, you're going to be much less nervous than if you're getting on stage and delivering something for the first time. So I think being comfortable with your material and practicing and the preparation that goes into it is really half the battle. Uh, and if you are an aspiring public speaker, I think, you know, definitely check out online courses and watch presentations from some of the world's best public speakers, you know, TED, TED Talks and Obama speeches and learn how they not only use the content, but they use the pacing of their voice, the tone of their voice, hand gestures and body language to make themselves really compelling speakers. And those are things that you can, you know, study from home and then implement into your own talks as you want to. Uh, And also, I think it's important to remember that not everybody wants to be a public speaker and that's okay. There are lots of people who, you know, will never get up in front of a crowd, but it is important to be able to communicate clearly because you'll likely have to present to, you know, investors if you're an entrepreneur or stakeholders, partners, clients. So whether you want to get on stage in front of a thousand people or whether you're just standing in a boardroom of four people, having very clear communication skills is never a bad thing. Yes, absolutely. And that's definitely a great point that, you know, it's something that maybe some entrepreneurs don't always think about, but it's definitely an important skill to have. For sure. I mean, I think, you know, public speaking doesn't have to mean getting on stage. It could be, you know, pitching in uh, pitching to one person. It's really more about how to get your message across succinctly and clearly. And again, preparation is key. Uh, we actually participated in a startup accelerator program last summer in Montreal. And the culmination of that program was a demo day where I presented Willful on stage to a thousand people. And I can tell you, I was terrified because there was investors in that audience. And if I messed it up, then maybe they wouldn't want to give us money and there was journalists there that were going to be writing about us. I mean, it was a high stakes presentation and 
I practiced probably 150 times. And while I was still nervous getting on stage, I knew the presentation like the back of my hand. And, you know, I, I think it's also important to remember that audiences are typically sympathetic to you. Everyone sitting in that audience wanted me to succeed. No one is rooting for you to fail, especially when you're an entrepreneur and you're talking about your idea. So finding a friendly face in the audience uh, and locking eyes with them and making sure that you can look at them if you get nervous is also a great tip that I have for just making sure that I can block out the rest of the audience and just focus on, you know, let's say Kevin in the audience giving me that big encouraging smile. Absolutely. And also another, I guess, aspect right now a lot of people are focusing on is sort of their personal brand. What advice would you give to those that are currently working on their personal brand? And why do you think it's such an important aspect for people to be thinking about? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think you know, it's interesting. I didn't really know what a personal brand was when I started my startup career in 2008. And back then it was just when social media was starting to become a thing. I mean, it, Instagram didn't exist and Facebook had just opened up to the, the wider audience beyond students. Um, and I think I, by virtue of just joining a startup and going out to a million events and interviewing people, uh, I started to build this personal brand almost by accident. And looking back, I think it was the single biggest thing that made a difference to my career. I grew this really great network just by, by virtue of meeting people in person and, and online. And when my startup actually you know, ran out of money and the one that I worked for and, and shut down, uh, and then a couple of years later, when I was laid off, both of those times, those low points in my career, I didn't feel nervous because I knew that I had this really strong network that I could turn to for opportunities or to have coffees and figure out what was next. So to me, building a personal brand, the purpose of it is not to help you when things are going well. It's to be there for you when you're in the low points of your career. And everyone has those low points. I don't know anybody that hasn't been laid off or experienced some sort of challenge in their career. So I think the best way to go about it is just to figure out, you know, first what your what you want your personal brand to be about. Mine is very much marketing and, and business and entrepreneurship, but also a lot of pizza and wine thrown in, maybe some bachelor as well. Um, you know, it's important to show your personality and your personal brand. Uh, and then to figure out how you want to build that. I mean, for me, social media is a place that I love to hang out and spend time. So it's a very natural thing for me. But if you hate social media, maybe you're building your personal brand offline in the community by being part of local associations or groups or, um, you know, judging events or volunteering at them. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a social media thing, but it's more, how are you building your connections? How are you adding value to that network over time by facilitating introductions? or helping people uh, and then you know how do you keep that network warm over time so that when you do have a low point in your career inevitably uh, they're there to kind of help you through it mm -hmm, absolutely and you had talked about um, sort of your career in marketing there and I just want to say congratulations on being named one of marketing magazines top 30 under 30 that's such a huge accomplishment and I'd really just love to hear sort of more about that and what that was like for you. Yeah, of course. So um, I have to admit, Sarah, that was quite a while ago. That was in 2012, I believe. So trust me, I am not under 30 anymore. And now I'm gunning for that, you know, 40 under 40. I still have some time. But yeah, that was, um, I mean, I'm going to be honest. I think this is important to share. 
most of those things are because of personal connections and networks. It's not necessarily the people on those lists are the top 30 because they've been judged objectively against everyone else who could be eligible. Uh, in my case, you know, I knew the publishers at Marketing Magazine. Uh, I knew the person who was some of the people who were on the judging committee. Um, and so I think, you know, I definitely had some inside connections that helped me to be picked for the final group not to say that it wasn't deserving uh, it wasn't deserving of it but uh, I think it's important to know especially knowing that that you're not necessarily based in downtown Toronto and there are a lot of entrepreneurs or people listening who may not have those inside connections so I think it's important to note that it's not just always based on merit it's often based on being in the right place at the right time uh, and I think the best thing you can do to get on their radar is you know use digital tools to connect you with people the people behind those publications or those lists, you know, connect with them on, on Twitter and follow their stuff and make yourself a familiar face so that when you are actually applying, uh, you can have a leg up. And another tip would be to speak to past recipients. You know, if you're applying for a 30 under 30, reach out to someone like me who's maybe done it in the past and has tips on how to frame your application or things that you can do. Uh, and then you'll have you know, a better chance of, of making it through um, because you've had help along the way. Yeah, and you had, so you had sort of mentioned um, now going sort of for the 40 under 40. Do you have any other sort of future plans for yourself or for your business that you'd like to share? Oh, geez, Sarah, that's a tough one. I think everyone right now is so focused on just getting through the next few months that it seems weird to be thinking about the future. I mean, I'd love to travel again at some point in life, but uh, leaving my house is something that I aspire to do <laughs> in the short term. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, honestly, Kevin and I have kind of set out our ultimate goal for our lives to uh, be entrepreneurs uh, in our own businesses, but also to start an angel investment fund focused on investing in non-traditional entrepreneurs. So I think, you know, when Kevin started Willful, he had a background in trades. He was not the person in high school. I was the person that got 90s and that was super academic and that went to university. And Kevin was kind of the opposite. He didn't always do the best in school. He, you know, worked in trades. He didn't go to university. He went to college instead and, and uh, did a more hands-on degree. And it was really difficult for him to raise funding when he was starting Willful because everybody wanted to see that fancy business degree or a company that had succeeded under his belt before they wrote him a check. And so, and similar on my side, there's a lot less funding opportunities for female entrepreneurs. Uh, a lot of the venture capital dollars go to men. And I think Kevin and I have really set ourselves uh, a goal of being able to fund entrepreneurs who don't fit the typical mold of people who get money, whether that's first-time entrepreneurs, people from non-traditional backgrounds, people from marginalized groups. Uh, so that's a kind of our ultimate goal is to someday have our own investment fund where we can kind of influence how dollars are flowing to entrepreneurs that don't look like the typical person walking into Shark Tank. Uh, and uh, so that's kind of the long-term goal. But I think with Willful, 
whole, we don't really know where it's going to go. I mean, we are super passionate about the mission and, you know, our research shows that about 60% of Canadian adults don't have a will or power of attorney documents or any sort of plans in place for, for when they pass away. So we have a lot of work to do and we think there's a lot of opportunity to, to build products and services that help with this. So we are, we might run it for the next 20 years. We might run it for the next five, but either way, uh, we're absolutely loving it right now. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm very excited to sort of see where all of that goes. And I mean, I could talk about this all day, but I know we're sort of running out of time. So just before we finish up, I have to ask, um, one of your claims to fame was being retweeted by Oprah twice. Um, Can you just tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it's the best claim to fame, I have to say. So it was, it must have been, you know, almost 10 years ago. It was when her network launched in Canada, the OWN network, and if you've seen the episode where she gives away all the cars, she says, you know, you get a car and you get a car. So she had tweeted on that day, Own is launching in Canada today. Who's going to be watching? So I retweeted it and said, you know, everybody gets Own. And she retweeted that. And then she tweeted again about a show that was premiering that night. And she added my name to the end of it. Like she must have copy and pasted my, my Twitter name and put it in, which basically led me to believe that we were best friends, obviously. <laughs> Um, but as soon as, as soon as she tweeted it, I started getting, it was almost like the floodgates had opened and I had no idea what happened because my Twitter feed just started taking off. All of these new people were following, all of these people were messaging me, asking if I could introduce them to Oprah as if we were somehow like Oprah and Gail besties. Yes. While Oprah did retweet me twice that day, I have not spoken to her since and unfortunately cannot count her amongst one of my my Twitter friends, although I still have the screenshots to prove it just in case my grandkids ask. (laughs) Absolutely. That's amazing. Um, (laughs) Well, Erin, thank you so much for coming on Made It Happen and giving so many great pieces of advice. Um, Do you have sort of any final thoughts for our listeners? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess just first of all, thank you for shining a spotlight on on people who are who are taking risks and who are starting things. And uh, I think it's great that you're embarking on your own entrepreneurial journey with this podcast. So thank you for having me as one of your your guests. Um, and I think my biggest advice to people is just to take the risk. I mean, I I remember debating whether I should leave that PR agency job to go work for a startup. And I asked my mom, and I'm so happy to say that instead of saying, take the safe route, stay in your job, she said, you know, take the risk, go join the startup. What's the worst that could happen? And so now I always say that to people, you know, what's the worst that could happen if your idea doesn't work out or that job at a startup doesn't turn out the way that you thought it would? You just go back to doing what you were doing before or you find an alternative but you don't want to be the kind of person that looks back 20 years from now and said, what if I took that leap? So my, my advice is take the leap. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely great advice. Thank you so much. And how about you, you can tell our listeners sort of where they can find you or your business online. For sure. So you can find me at Erin Burry, E-R-I-N-B-U-R-Y on pretty much every platform. And you can find Willful at willful.co or at Willful Wills on pretty much every social media channel. And if the wine tour part of this conversation was the only thing that caught your attention, you can find that at thecountywinetours.com. Perfect. Thank you so much again. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on today. Of course. Thanks so much, Sarah, for having me. Okay. 
Thanks for listening to Made It Happen Podcast, the podcast highlighting female entrepreneurs. Make sure you subscribe to the channel, leave a review, and I'll see you next week.